months after the storm tore through the Gulf Coast, people in the environment are still adjusting to life post Ian. I was going to try to stay. And about the fourth band, I realized that I was putting my life and my partner's life in danger if we did that. Those affected most are continuing to rely on community support to rebuild while experts assess the long-term toll on local wildlife populations. In the meantime, both community members and researchers are seeing one phenomenon as nature is recovering, green growth sprouting from underneath a once brown landscape. The mangroves hugely protected us, as is the whole reason we want to have mangroves to protect barrier islands. They did their job. They may be stripped of vegetation right now, they're still intact. However, with damage like this, rebuilding takes time. And while they wait for results from in-depth research to come back, Southwest Floridians hold their breath. This is Surviving Ian. In the next half hour, we will hear from the Southwest Florida residents slowly putting their lives back together after the disastrous storm and talk to some people who are finding a few positives emerge from all the destruction. I'm Jack Prater. As perhaps one of the most destructive storms in the history of Florida, Hurricane Ian ravaged the Sunshine State. The storm left 4 million Floridians without power in late September. I'm Macy Goldfarb for WUFT News. Here in Brevard County, I'm just outside of Melbourne, less than half a mile from the East Coast. You can probably tell winds are still persistent here, sitting at about 25 miles per hour. I'm Fariha Abroad reporting from the Gainesville Regional Airport. Erin Porter spoke to us for the airport. She shared Delta Airlines is continuing operations as normal through its 6 a.m. departure tomorrow morning. After that, Delta flights are canceled until Friday. I'm here in the Sunset Park neighborhood in Tampa where things are looking a lot different than they did last night. The sun is shining, the wind has finally died down a bit, yet businesses like this Circle K behind me are still closed to the public. As you can see, they're still boarded up for the storm and the pumps remain closed. I've been driving around Tampa Bay for most of the afternoon and most damage seems a lot more minimal than we originally expected here in the Bay Area. Lots of fallen palm trees, a few tipped trees and scattered branches are common. The evacuation order in Hillsboro has been lifted. However, authorities continue to urge those on the road to use caution. In Tampa, Amy Gallo, WUFT News. Forming on September 23rd, then Tropical Storm Ian became a hurricane three days later on the 26th. Ian rapidly intensified, becoming a Category 4 storm in the next two days. The storm made landfall at Kea Costa with maximum sustained winds of 150 miles per hour, according to the National Environment Satellite Data and Information Service. That's just seven miles under being considered a Category 5, which is the most intense and powerful classification for hurricanes. Ian brought on an unprecedented storm surge of 12 to 18 feet in some areas. Good morning, everyone. Chief Meteorologist Jeff George in the Storm Center with the latest on Hurricane Ian. All right, storm surge is going to be devastating. Uh, we're looking at up to 12 to maybe 16 feet, and that's around and south of Sarasota, down towards Fort Myers, all the way into Collier County and far southern parts of the state and um, this is life-threatening storm surge and 
These numbers have increased overnight, by the way. Almost all the numbers have increased overnight. Uh, we have higher wind speeds, higher sustained wind speeds, higher wind gusts are expected, higher storm surge is expected. And as you're gonna see here in just a second, rain totals have also gone up in some areas. As the storm barreled across the state, it was eventually downgraded to a tropical storm. While it was declining in strength, Ian also brought on immense rainfall. Volusia County flooded in areas where the water didn't recede for days. You know, anything that wasn't, if it was touching the ground and could absorb water, it, it did. You know, we tried to save as much as we could, but it's water, you know, how you fight water. Lake Wales in central Florida saw up to 17 inches of rainfall in a 24-hour period. We've got three weeks left of hurricane season. You know, it goes all the way through the end of November. We certainly hope we don't have a third storm. Polk County in 2004, we had three hurricanes come through our county that year. Uh, we're the only county in the country that's had three hurricanes come through in the same year. But Cape Coral and Fort Myers suffered some of the worst damage of all. In the weeks after, sewage leaked out of manholes into the Caloosahatchee River that separates the two cities. The air was still tainted by the smell of gasoline and oil. On Fort Myers Beach, damage from the storm could be seen everywhere. Restaurants separated from their foundations and were seen floating down the street. The city's main fishing pier was reduced to just its wooden pilings. Offshore fishing vessels lay stacked atop one another and caught in the mangroves further inland. Some buildings that did survive the storm surge were heavily damaged. At the Fort Myers Yacht Basin, ships were piled on top of each other, reaching several feet above the pier. I'm gonna guess over a thousand boats that are destroyed up and all up and down this river. Every marina's been destroyed. If you go to the corner of the marina over there, you'll see parts of legacy docks floated this way. Some vessels sank to the bottom, while a few were carried by storm surge up over the docks and onto roads. Residents described the scene as looking like boats had fallen straight from the sky. It got beat to death. The top flybridge came off and then um, I got tired of looking at it, but when I, I, I couldn't help it. But when I did double take, it was gone. And I'm like, did it sink or did it break? And is it someone's yard in Cape Coral? Today, remnants of houseboats are still visible from Edison Bridge. Across the river in Cape Coral, Camille Lumbert worked as a fishing charter captain for two years. She says she's unsure of the future the coast may be facing. We had captains going out and I mean, I would come back and they're just bawling their eyes out, you know, so it's, it's you, you look at it how everything's destroyed and then you look at, you know, how many people were here with a 16 foot of surge trying to swim their way to, to live. Smaller boats in the getaway marina at Pelican Bay are overturned in the water, but most of the damage from the catastrophic storm was found across Southwest Florida's barrier islands. Sanibel Island, usually a sleepy beach town, was severed from the mainland by a collapse of its causeway bridge. Carolyn Bradbury Schwartz braved the hurricane in her home on Sanibel and watched as the storm surge washed over the island. So I'm looking out my front window and I thought, oh my God, there is a wave coming. So this wave just comes across the cart path and I'm thinking, what? <laughs> and um, it hit Sandcastle and then just rushes up the road like a river. I mean, it just took everything. And all of a sudden it's just inching forward like by the minutes like this, just coming in and then all of a sudden 
I'm like run downstairs and we're grabbing as much as we could to bring it up. The refrigerator in the garage ended up on the hood of my car. Everything was floating. And, um, but yeah, and then luckily, you know, hours and hours this went on. And then all of a sudden I was like, it's going down. <laughs> but even though the bridge is now repaired, residents like Schwartz can't get into their waterlogged homes for the holidays. An average of 21 and a half million people were forcibly displaced each year by natural disasters between 2008 and 2016, according to a United Nations report. 13 Florida counties were declared eligible for federal disaster relief following the hurricane, and property damage is estimated to be upwards of $100 billion across affected areas. We had a rapid restoration of power throughout the state on a scale that we've never done so quickly before. Uh, of course, uh, unprecedented search and rescue that was helping particularly people out here where we are right now, as well as other barrier islands and other places where people needed help. Uh, we also made sure that where there were uh, lagging in resources for things like power restoration, that we marshaled the resources in the state with other companies to come help in Lee County. More than 100 people died in the hurricane, and many of those who survived have lost their homes. While there is no current estimate on the number of refugees displaced by Hurricane Ian, Southwest Florida residents are still taking stock of their damages and how much of these repairs needs to come from their own pockets. Homeowners and renters dealing with this property damage have lots of questions about how to handle insurance claims and FEMA rules and many don't have the resources or the time to sit down with an attorney. So in Cape Coral, the attorneys came to them. They're coming with their head down, you know, insecure or I'm, I guess more anxious of, I have this problem, I don't know what to do. Local lawyers associated with the Calusa Inn of Court have held free monthly legal clinics all around Lee County since the storm hit. Business lawyer Maritrini Soto Garcia says questions range from landlord tenant issues to insurance claims to permitting requests. At the third clinic hosted by the association, Soto Garcia says she noticed the smiles and gratitude shown by the community. We're here because we want to volunteer, we want to give our time, and we want to provide the resources that we can, right? And it's good to hear that it's making a difference to someone's life. Soto Garcia says she has heard horror stories. One family told her they paid their full rent in October, despite 90% of their house being uninhabitable. It's gut-wrenching to hear that, but at the same time, they're so vulnerable. They're in a position of vulnerability. They don't know what their rights are, and they don't want to lose their home, right? They're thinking, if I don't pay my rent, I'm going to be evicted. And there is a shortage of housing in the area. But most in attendance had issues with their insurance companies. Cape Coral resident Louise Torkelson hasn't even been able to get in touch with her insurance company concerning the damages to her home. And we've had trouble getting our insurance company to respond to us, so they just keep postponing us, so we're hoping that this will help. Business lawyer Stephen Domerick says many people, like Torkelson, aren't sure what their insurance companies can and can't get away with. There was massive legislation last year that um, was really favorable to the insurance companies. So, you know, this was the first time we're really dealing with that new legislation. And obviously, like I said, they don't tell anyone about this. So a lot of what we're seeing is a lot of, um, you know, homeowners just don't know and they don't have the resources to go ahead and have someone answer these questions. 
Vicki Cosgrove moved to Cape Coral 33 years ago and has lived there ever since. She says she has even had to fight with her insurer over minor damages from the storm. One of my issues is uh, my air conditioners should have been covered under my flood, and they denied it because the pictures that I submitted did not show the machines themselves underwater at the time. And I told them I wasn't there. I had evacuated. There's, it's impossible to get those pictures. And they just said tough. But gatherings like this aren't just for those with property damage. Sanibel residents, whose homes were completely lost in the storm, now rely on their neighbors in Fort Myers. They have temporarily found a community off-island while they wait in uncertainty for a time to return. In the few minutes before the bi-weekly Sanibel City Council meeting starts, residents filled into a large library conference room in downtown Fort Myers. They chit-chatted about the World Cup and swapped words of advice on where to find houses to rent on the mainland while they wait for their homes to be habitable again. The room quieted as Sanibel Mayor Holly Smith opened the meeting as she always does, reminding folks of how long they've been waiting in limbo. Uh, good evening everyone. Today is November 22nd and today is day 55 of our post and recovery. CD officials went through the motions they've been repeating for the last two months while attendees took notes or stared at their shoes. We want to help businesses open uh, both on Santa Bella and Captiva and so we're, we're doing this to try to make it more convenient for businesses but also for us as well that we don't have to uh, distribute hundreds of passes. So this is one of those pivots that we've talked about that we find that we have to make from time to time. That's city manager Dana Souza. Among other things, he gave updates on power restoration and the island's plans to rebuild its infrastructure even stronger. Um, it's also really important that they put the concrete poles in because those are the ones that are hardened for the storm. So should we I won't even say it. We, we, we want the concrete poles. But the room perked up again when Sanibel Natural Resources Director Holly Milbrandt took the stage to give a wildlife update. I've been told that a group of vultures is called a kettle, so you can use that in your um, trivia, trivia night. And um, <laughs> today. Milbrandt understands the power of the good news she brings to residents who care deeply about the wildlife they share their island with. I definitely think it's a it's a huge morale boost and I think you know for a lot of people a storm of that magnitude it's just really hard to grasp um, you know that wildlife could even survive that you know so I think it's super encouraging to know that they're resilient maybe more so than you know we are. Sanibel is home to more than 300 wildlife species only 40 percent of the island belongs to humans with the majority made up of conservation areas and residents take pride in this. Shell driveways and native landscaping wind up and down the island. But in the days following Hurricane Ian, these unintrusive paths were covered under a thick layer of sludge dredged up by the storm surge, and the native plants withered under a hot sun and saltwater intrusion. Now, green growths are re-emerging and the sandy bottom of the island is reappearing, and with it, Sanibel's wildlife is peeking out of the debris. But we have, um, you know, particularly some species that I think people were really concerned about, like like a gopher tortoise, right? You know, it burrows, it creates a burrow in the ground. And you just, 
it's hard to imagine what it did with a 12-foot storm surge. But, you know, so to have reports of them surviving, our public works guys and some of the first guys on island, you know, when there was no bridge and all that, like they could get out there and they could report back and be like, we've got live tortoises, you know. Yeah, it was super exciting. <laughs> Milbrandt says the animals are enjoying their break from noisy humans. She's spotted large flocks of birds gathering on the shorelines and bobcat droppings on the now deserted island. Yeah, it's super um, encouraging to hear people who've, you know, lost so much but want to know, you know, hey, what are the wildlife do? Or what are, what are the plants doing? You know, those, all those kinds of things. But word of mouth will have to do until the people of Sanibel can see the wildlife with their own eyes again. Sanibel Island is an important ecological feature for Southwest Florida. It's the first piece of land where migratory birds rest along the Gulf of Mexico as they travel north. And after Hurricane Ian ripped through the island, it's no longer an option for species seeking refuge among thick trees and vegetation. Kara Lefebvre is an environmental studies associate professor at Florida Gulf Coast University. She says it's too soon to say how bird species in the area may have been affected by this storm. But she compared what may be happening to what scientists found in the aftermath of 2017's Hurricane Irma. And we were looking at how mangrove structure changed and how that influenced foraging of wading birds. Basically, the hurricane um, action tore away a lot of the canopy cover and vegetation cover in the mangroves, and that would impact the habitat that they use for foraging. So it affects light penetration coming in and then the amount of food availability. And then for seabirds and shorebirds, it would impact the, the substrate they have upon which to nest. So it's going to completely change the shape of the places that they breed. Lefebvre says it doesn't take much to impact species behavior, so a powerful hurricane like Ian packs a wallop. Even the tropical storms we have that aren't, don't become named storms can have a big impact on shifting around where birds are. So I, I remember after, I think it was Tropical Storm Dorian, it was maybe 2018, the skimmer populations that I was looking at here, birds were being blown all the way up to Nova Scotia in eastern Canada. She says we know this because of banned trafficking data and citizen science, or photo evidence from avid bird watchers who upload their findings to scientific social networks like iNaturalist. There we go. Oh, nice streaks. Okay. Ah, hear that chirp? Former president of the Audubon of Southwest Florida, Vince McGrath, is among those who avidly track and take notes on local birds. It's something that he's done just about every day since he wrote his first birding observation on March 19, 1967, when he was 13 years old. When Hurricane Ian hit, McGrath's Cape Coral condo took on significant flooding, displacing him and his wife, who are now being housed by McGrath's brother. But dealing with home damage was not the only thing he was initially concerned about. Just a short while after Ian hit, McGrath traveled to one of his favorite birdwatching spots, the Cape Coral Rotary Park, where he first took stock of the aftermath and power of the storm. And I see, by the time I got up to here, they, they were, it was like they were coming out of the woods here, all looking around like, what happened? Wow, I, I mean, they looked a little disheveled. They also looked like they were happy to survive. And after a while, um, it got pretty active. And about the average number of species I see here in the morning, it's about the same. So from a negative effect on them, I think it was minimal. Now, McGrath's bird sightings are slightly higher than what he usually sees in a day, 
which he's grateful for, but he's still worried about a few vulnerable species. Among his chief concerns are the mangrove cuckoo, a non-migratory bird that relies on red and black mangroves as habitat, and the screech owl, a common sighting on Sanibel, according to McGrath. McGrath says that these two native, non-migratory bird species could be in danger as their foraging and nesting grounds were decimated by Hurricane Ian. However, McGrath says he sees a silver lining despite the destruction. Nature will bounce back. Nature always bats last. While plenty of beautiful bird species greeted McGrath in just a two-hour time span at Rotary Park, one place he still yearns to be able to visit again is Sanibel Island. With hurricane passes still in place, McGrath is among those ineligible to visit. A popular birding spot on the island is the Ding Darling National Wildlife Refuge, which provides protected feeding, nesting, and roosting grounds for threatened and migratory species. Ding Darling Supervisory Refuge Ranger Tony Westland says that while biologists are still taking stock of how exactly vulnerable species were impacted, slowly, she is seeing evidence of nature's resilience. I've never seen so many eagles on Sanibel. We've had our resident eagles that nest, but lots of eagles, ospreys, obviously, birds. So to see all of those little bits of hope and then seeing white pelicans, which is our symbol that winter has returned, thank God, you know, to see the white pelicans along the wildlife drive and not being able to share that with visitors and people. It's been really hard. And the island's animals aren't the only ones showing resilience. The mangroves hugely protected us, as is the whole reason we want to have mangroves to protect barrier islands. They did their job. They may be stripped of vegetation right now, they're still intact. It may look bad, just like it happened with Charlie, just like Irma, when we looked at and studied our um, mangroves down on 10,000 Islands and down there where it really hit down there. Um, there it will be regrowth. The structure exists. While Southwest Florida continues to focus on rebuilding, to some, the local flora and fauna beginning to bounce back is a reminder that hope is on the horizon. Part of that hope is found in the work being done by local nonprofits. PJ Shiner is a personal injury lawyer who works with Captains for Clean Water. He joined the organization after a scuba trip one winter, when shallow dives are possible due to clear visibility from less rain and runoff. But Shiner quickly realized he couldn't see much down there. And um, I rolled and it was in like 40 feet a few miles off Sanibel, and I literally hit the bottom before I saw it, right? And then I surfaced, I got out of the water, and I smelled like shit. So I had been here my whole life, and I had no idea about the scale of the discharge problems. Co-founder Daniel Andrews started Captains for Clean Water five years ago in direct response to the flushing of nutrient-rich discharges from Lake Okeechobee into the Caloosahatchee River. These releases are partly responsible for increased intensity and duration of red tide blooms, and also the decrease in water clarity and quality that Shiner describes. The nonprofit works with lawyers and local charter fishermen to negotiate lake management plans that help lessen these extreme red tide blooms. 
But in the aftermath of Ian, Andrew says the organization is pairing charter fishing captains currently out of a job with biology research teams in need of a workforce. Yeah, they're going to be out of business for for a long time uh, until those hotels and resorts are all built. They don't have people to take out and, and show the, the environment to and, and experience the, the environment here. So they're having to try to figure out other things. And, and um, you know, it, it started with the boat trips out and, and some, you know, rescuing people from the islands and it kind of evolved into, you know, helping people with the, the immediate relief efforts. And then, you know, now we're at the point where it's um, this, this fund that we've put together, we're, we're funding guides to go out and get water samples with scientists when needed, uh, pick up trash. There's, there's plastic and junk all over the mangroves. Andrew says charter captains are also taking first responders out fishing. Yeah, even with the red tide, there's a lot of really you know cool areas to go see and fish and a lot of waiting birds around right now. So we're, we're just trying to um, you know, get those people out and, and show them uh, something just to kind of get their mind off of the, the chaos and carnage that they were dealing with for so long. In the coming months, researchers will attempt to understand how environmental factors may be exacerbating recovery efforts. One such researcher is professor of marine science Michael Parsons. He's also the director of the Vester Marine and Environmental Science Research Field Station at FGCU. A research project he's currently working on concerns red tide, an environmental phenomenon created by Karenia brevis, a type of microscopic algae that produces toxins. And these toxins can get uh, people sick, they can get wildlife sick, and they can cause fish kills and other kinds of mortalities in the water. Though red tide occurs naturally and has been reported in every U.S. coastal state, Florida's Gulf Coast, north of Tampa Bay, Naples, and Marco Island, is particularly vulnerable. Parsons says his research team hasn't found any evidence that Hurricane Ian has significantly impacted red tides as long-term studies have yet to be completed. So I think everybody's kind of holding their breath right now and seeing how the aftermath of Ian will affect red tide? Is it going to last longer? Is it going to be more intense? You know, basically what we saw after Irma. So that's what everyone's really interested and concerned about. It's the same story for other researchers. Ding Darling Ranger Tony Westland has been back and forth every week from Sanibel's conservation lane since the storm. No volunteers are allowed into the nature preserve and biologists are still gathering information for long-term species impact studies. In the meantime, Westland says all she can rely on are her eyes and ears. So we've got lots of people coming in to study. So it's a long-term thing. I wish I could just tell you, but I can only speak on what I've been seeing, which is bird life, manatees, dolphins, bobcats, lots of raccoon tracks, lots of scat. You know, you start to think, you're like, wow, there's no people out here. They're like, with all the tracks and stuff, you're like, they're enjoying this, you know what I mean? Um, so we are seeing signs of resilience with the wildlife, so that's exciting. There's no telling when people will be able to return to their homes or enjoy Southwest Florida's parks and nature again. While uncertainty hangs in the air over wildlife impact, insurance issues, and poisoned waterways, the only certainty is that residents are moving forward and constantly adapting to a new environment forever changed by the storm.
Surviving Ian was produced by Julia Cooper, Elliot Trito, Matthew Bell, and Jack Prater. Our executive producer is Ryan Vasquez. WUFT News is operated out of the College of Journalism and Communications at the University of Florida. Remember to follow us at WUFT News on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for the latest news and information. You can read the full story and see photos from the aftermath of Hurricane Ian at WUFT.org. I'm Jack Prater. Thanks for listening.